So I think maybe I've told you before about a stick that we got in the mail several years ago. Uh, it was supposed to be a, a sapling that we ordered, um, and, and I guess that's what it was. Uh, we wanted a weeping willow tree. Our yard kind of gets wet down in the back by the, by the fence, and so we thought a, a willow tree would be a great thing to plant down there, and, and uh, I don't know, Arbor Day Foundation or something, to order this, just to, you know, it seemed uh, too good to be true, uh, not all that expensive, and so we got, we ordered this thing and sure enough it comes in the mail and we open it up and it's about this long and it's a stick 18 inch stick right and and on one end there's maybe these I don't know they called them roots but they kind of looked with almost like a, a spider web kind of thing I, I don't know, just and, and they said you know don't worry I know I mean this isn't verbatim, but in the instructions it said, I, I, uh, we know this doesn't look like much, but trust us, it'll work. And so uh, they said, plant it in the ground, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll grow, go for it. And so we dug a hole right where we wanted to put it, and we put the stick in the yard, and uh, we planted this little twig in faith. And uh, I mean, the yard's still wet, but I mean, it's a willow tree, right? And so, so we followed the instructions, and then we waited. And a week later, it's still just a stick, right? And two weeks later, still a stick. And a month later, uh, it, it, I mean, it just looked like some big branch up in the tree had blown out and stuck down in the yard. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a stick in the yard. And, and uh, it just wasn't doing anything. And uh, I mean, they said, you know, that to trust it and it would work, but they said after a month, you should probably see something. And we weren't seeing anything, but it wasn't doing much harm. Well, maybe it's been too wet. I don't know. We'll just leave it there and we'll see. And I, I don't know how much later it was. Uh, I don't, I didn't mark it on the calendar. I didn't circle it. I, but like, so we planted it in like late April, let's say. And this was maybe July. I noticed that there was, uh, there was a little something going on down at the base of this twig. And, um, and, and it looked like the, the color was changing a little bit and, and there might even be a sprout. And sure enough, a few more days and a few more days and a few more, sprouted and then another sprout and, uh, started, and pretty soon it started to look like it might actually have some life in this. This thing might actually turn into a tree of some sort. Now I believe, if I'm counting right, I think that was five years ago. Um, right now, if you look in our, I think we got a picture. Uh, that's what it was as of like Thursday. Uh, so this twig has turned into that and, uh, it's, it's, uh, coming to life again and every year it gets bigger and I don't know, 15, 20 feet tall and, and, uh, it, it, someday we might actually have a willow tree back there. Um, but it, 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 uh, it didn't look at all like that for sure. And, uh, I, I guess all the potential for life, it was in that twig from the start, even though it looked dead. It just needed to be revived. It needed, needed that life. And, and so this, this spring and summer, over the next, uh, five or six weeks, we're going to, uh, uh, we're going to be looking into this series because this, this spring and summer, we, we're starting to come alive again, right? I mean, it's, it's been a long year and a half of this pandemic and, uh, all of its ramifications. And for many people, it's been a time of upheaval and, and maybe depression or, or maybe loss or maybe frustration or maybe all of those things or, or uh, it, it might be good for us, I guess, to focus on what it might take to be revived, to see new life sprout where things maybe have, have withered. So today we're starting an adventure in reviving, coming alive again, uh, uh, stronger than ever. And to do that over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the words of, a, of an Old Testament powerhouse, a guy named Ezra. 
Now, maybe you know who Ezra is, or maybe Ezra is a new name to you. There is a book in the Bible uh, named Ezra, but we're not really going there in this series. We're walking, going to be walking through some key passages in that, uh, that in a couple other books that Ezra wrote, First and Second Chronicles. As everything opens back up uh, after so many months of the pandemic, I, I think we'll see that we have some things in common with the nation of Israel in Ezra's day. In essence, First and Second Chronicles were written to help uh, recover from a national crisis. In, in 606 BC, Israel was exiled to Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They broke down the walls. They carried away virtually everyone into captivity. And a whole generation uh, grew up, uh, Jewish people grew up in Babylon, in exile, awake, away from the promised land, away from their native land. But then, then uh, uh, God set them free. The Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. And then the Persians said, uh, all these nations that had been conquered, they, they uh, sent them home. And they, basically, they gave them an open up order, so to speak. They, they, they said, open up your countries, restart your jobs and businesses, worship your God, uh, do, do what you need to do to get back to uh, life uh, the, the, way, the way it was, get back to life as you knew it, get back to life with your God. Over the course of several years then, the Israelites returned uh, from, from Babylon to Israel. An initial wave of people came under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel, one of the cooler names in the Old Testament, although I don't know that I'd name my kids Zerubbabel, but uh, anyway, I, I just, it's one of the, one of, maybe a dog, I don't know, Zerubbabel. That'd be good, I think, yeah. Uh, years later, though, then another wave of people came, uh, and, uh, and that was led by two guys, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. Maybe you recognize Nehemiah. That's another name uh, of, a, of a book in the, in the Old Testament. And he was the guy who rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. He led the people to, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The whole book of, of Nehemiah is kind of a, uh, man, a lot of people have used it as, as kind of a pattern for, for leadership, even in a whole lot of different areas. And how Nehemiah walked through that process and prayerfully followed God's direction and, and, and led the people. But, but Ezra wasn't like Nehemiah. He was there at the same time, but, but uh, Ezra wasn't a builder of walls. He was a builder of hearts. He was, he was concerned with reviving the people's character and their spiritual depth. Uh, one pastor described it this way, Nehemiah gave people the wall, but Ezra gave people the word. Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, he was a spiritual leader. He wasn't necessarily the, the political leader or the, uh, the, the, the guy leading the construction crew every day to build up the walls. He was the spiritual leader. He, he wrote several things that we have in our Old Testament today, including First and Second Chronicles. He also worked hard to instill God's truths into the souls of these exiled people, uh, helping to revive their hearts to, to, to seek after God and his ways. Now, if, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you may know that some of it seems to repeat itself, that it seems like you're reading something and then, then it's telling the same story, I mean, especially the books of First and Second Samuel and book and First and Second Kings. So in the Old Testament, you got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and they tell all about the history of the nation of Israel. And you got kings and you got, got uh, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. Then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and it starts telling the same stuff all over again. And, and you're going, well, what in the world? we got two, two different histories, and, and uh, some of it's the same, and, and you got the same people, but it's kind of telling from different angle and different... I mean, and I, I guess we could say it this way. Uh, the, the first, the first Samuel, first Samuel, Kings, that was written for details, but 
First and Second Chronicles was written for lessons, lessons to be learned. Samuel and Kings tells the, the story of, of what happened to Israel, but Chronicles tells that story with, uh, with the, 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 the purpose of teaching things from those stories. Uh, a group of prophets wrote Samuel and Kings. Ezra wrote Chronicles. Ezra wrote to these people who were discouraged, I guess we could say. They were returning to a land that had flourished a uh, hundred years before. Uh, their, uh, their, their parents and their grandparents had flourished there. Now they're coming back after being removed from the land. Uh, God had removed them in order to teach them some lessons. Now God's bringing them back so they can put those lessons into practice. And I believe that there are some lessons that Ezra taught them through this retelling of the history of God's people that we can apply to our lives as we live life, as we return to life, I guess. Not just physical life, not, not just talking about life without masks or, or whatever uh, comes over the next few weeks and months. But as we revive our hearts and, and seek after spiritual life with God. And so today we're going to be in First Chronicles 21. First Chronicles 21, Ezra's telling the story of a plague in the land and how God cut it short. But, but I don't want to just draw parallels uh, relating their plague to our virus, right? Uh, I'd like us to see through, through this entire series how Ezra told history to teach lessons that would revive the people of God, that would restore life to their souls. And this story today has a lot to do with what we need to do when we do something wrong. Uh, anybody ever done anything wrong before? Three of you, good. The rest of you, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you a little bit. You, you never, like, I mean, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. Because doggone it, I'm just going to do Anybody? Come on, come on. You, yeah, okay, couple, three. Uh, I wish we had the camera to pan the crowd so we can get you on, on uh, uh, for, for the, uh, the world to see. But um, uh, we've, we've all, I mean... All, all of us are guilty of that, whether you raise your hand. I mean, King, King David, this story is going to be about King David. We're going to read in just a second, First Chronicles 21. And uh, uh, King David uh, messed up multiple times. Uh, he was one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. Uh, he was the second king to be crowned, um, and, and yet he failed. Uh, but God still loved him and God still used him. And, and like David, we've all sinned, so I think we'll be able to relate to this story. Now, uh, in in the, the, the history of the church, we seem to be pretty good at keeping lists of sins, lists of how people mess up, right? Uh, I mean, somewhere along the way, I, I believe it's the Catholic Church that determined the seven deadly sins, right? Well, we just need to avoid those because those are, ooh, those are deadly, right? Well, or, or the, the Bible, I mean, over and over again, you can go through a whole bunch of lists of things that are wrong, the, the list of sins that are sprinkled throughout Scripture. Uh, I mean, the, the church in the past, you just think about maybe the last uh, 50, 75 years, conservative churches, uh, it, we, we uh, have tended to uh, uh, promote the evils of everything from dancing and rock and roll music to wearing makeup and going to the the picture show, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's evil and wicked. And then, I mean, you, you always knew who the, the holy young men in the church were because they were the ones who didn't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do, right? And so we've always been good at making lists of sins. But in First Chronicles 21, Ezra tells the story of David doing something that aren't on any of our lists. Uh, I, I mean, it, he did... He did some pretty bad things. I mean, you know, adultery. It's on pretty much every list. 
uh, murder, pretty much every list. Don't, don't do these things. Ezra didn't tell those stories, though. Uh, he, told, uh, he told a different story, that actually David did something that seems to us, I don't know, a little head-scratcher, uh, seems pretty minor. Um, David counted people, and God didn't like it. First Chronicles 21, 1 and 2, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab, the commanders of the, uh, and, and the commanders of the troops, go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report so I can know their number. Counting people didn't make any of those lists, I don't think. I've never really thought that, I mean, we, we had a census this past year. Uh, I, I believe our government is required every 10 years to uh, do, uh, does that mean that uh, the government is wicked and eat? Well, don't answer that. But because the, uh, the, the, the census uh, doesn't necessarily, it's not that there's, you know, this, this big law against counting people. I mean, uh, it, it, the census helps us to, uh, to know, uh, you know, how to allocate funds and where people, all those sorts of things. I mean, even in, in scripture, God orders uh, a, a census more than once. Uh, as he, he, he wanted people to be counted as they left Egypt. He wanted them to be counted again as they moved into the promised land and in the Old Testament. I mean, as a general rule, counting isn't sinful. You graduates who are going into math and things, uh, analyzing data, it, it's not that it's sinful, wicked, and evil, all right? Um, so I don't know. I find it hard to identify with this a little bit because it doesn't quite make sense. What, what's the big deal? The issue is, that, uh, that David seems to be acting out of pride. He just wanted to see how great he was and so, to pat himself on the back. And so uh, it says that Satan was the instigator of this. Satan used one of the oldest temptations in the book, pride, to lure David into sin. And whether you get the big deal here or not, uh, probably still going, well, still I don't quite get it. What we need to know that in that culture and in that time, this was a prideful, sinful thing for David to do and he knew it and he did it anyway. And God knew it and wasn't happy. It, it says, we didn't read it, but a few verses later, it says that God, quote, afflicted Israel because of David's sin. And in the aftermath, Ezra uses this story this kind of weird, obscure story, but he uses this story to help the returning exiles see what true restoration with God looks like. So I want to pick up the story. We'll jump down to verse uh, verse fourteen, uh, and we'll we'll just kind of see what happened as as uh, as as this plague that afflicted Israel uh, was was coming upon the people because of David's sin. It says so. The Lord sent a plague on Israel, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, but as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. 
Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the time of the Lord. Jumping down a verse or two, David said to Aruna, let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at full price. Aruna said to David, no, take it. Let my Lord the King do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxygen, oxygen, oxen. How about oxen? I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But King David replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Whew, that's a big story. A lot is there, kind of a little obscure. Maybe you've heard that story before, maybe you haven't. I think one reason that Ezra included this in, in Chronicles would have been to, to, uh, to teach the people, to remind the people who are coming back and uh, rebuilding the city and uh, would be rebuilding the temple to remind them the importance of the location of the temple because the temple was located. If you read the, read the next uh, chapter or two in, in uh, First Chronicles, you see that David uh, uh, started to, to pile up uh, uh, funds and things to build the temple, and this was going to be the location, the threshing floor of Aruna the, the, uh, the, the Jebusite, because uh, David saw it as a holy place. It's where the angel stopped and didn't go any further uh, because God relented and, and, and pulled back the plague. So Ezra could have been uh, teaching them the importance of this, uh, of this location for the temple. But, but I don't think that was his main reason. I, I, I think Ezra was also telling this story because all who heard it could relate to it in a sense. It's a story of sin and forgiveness. It's a story of broken relationship and restoration of relationship. It's a, it's a do-over story. It's a revival story. Because like David Maybe counting people isn't what we've done, but we've all done things out of pride, right? Maybe we've never been tempted to commit adultery or murder like David did, but we've all given in to the temptation to commit, uh, maybe, I don't know, we could maybe categorize this as, as one of the little sins, so to speak. Things that we know are wrong, but we go ahead and do them because it's not that big a deal, and God says they're wrong, and I don't know, it's kind of like counting people, I guess, the census thing. Ezra's teaching, one thing Ezra's teaching here is the costliness of sin. Even the little ones. One man's sin, David's sin, which really didn't seem like that big a deal, cost 70,000 men their lives. Crazy. Sometimes, sometimes we think that what we do in, in the privacy of our own lives uh, is, is just between us and God, right? And it's just a little sin and it's no big deal and God will probably forgive me anyway and it won't hurt anybody and... We can learn, one thing we can learn from this story is that sin's consequences always go further than we think. David's sin was small and personal and yet incredibly costly. But I think even more than Ezra teaching the people why the location of the temple was such a big deal and, and more than teaching about the costliness of sin, I think Ezra's main objective here uh, was, was telling a, a real life story in order to illustrate what real repentance and forgiveness looks like. 
real repentance and forgiveness are, are the foundation. They're at the core of what it means to have a new start with God. The core of revival. It, 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 it starts with repentance and forgiveness. Ezra uses the story of David's sin and his repentance to teach the people and to teach us the, the, the posture of our hearts. Uh, that, that, that what, what we need to do, how we need to, to, uh, to approach things as we realize sin in our lives. What happened in David's heart is really a roadmap for us in uh, restoring life. It's how revival and renewal begins. And maybe you'll, as we go through this, you'll say, man, this is, this is simple. This is, uh, yeah, no, I, I know this. But are you doing it? <laughs> we, can, we can know what it means to repent, but do, are we really repenting? We can know what it means to confess our sin, but then we can justify it in another breath. It's a simple process. And yet we've got to walk through that process in order to start that restoration in our lives with God. One, one thing we need to do, and we see it in David's life, and, and I'm going to say it this way, uh, you've got to own your stuff. You've got to own your stuff. I learned this a whole new way from a trolley driver in Sedona, Arizona. Rebecca and I signed up for a, a, a trolley tour uh, on a rainy day in Sedona, we figured it would be a good option uh, where we'd still see some sights, but we wouldn't get wet doing it. And so uh, uh, the people on the tour gathered in the storefront, and uh, where, where you know they, where they collect your money and get all organized, and then uh, you, you go up the up the steps and around the corner, and there's the trolley parked on the side of the road, and we're following our our driver up, and we sit there. He is. You can see us see him sitting there, uh, and th- and that that's uh, that was our trolley that day. So we sit down, everybody gets organized, we're all ready to go, uh, he's talking to us, he's, he, he could spin a yarn for sure, and, uh, and, and he's talking, and then, then we're like, okay, let's, let's go, and we didn't go anywhere. And then uh, we, we uh, realize that uh, he's trying to start the trolley, and the trolley ain't starting. And uh, so, so uh, you know, he, he turned around, he said, you know what, it's not starting, but uh, rest assured, we have a maintenance guy, he's just, you know, down around the corner, or whatever, I'll just give him a call, I think probably all we need to do is jump start the thing, and uh, everything will be good, and, and that didn't give me a whole lot of confidence, we're going to be driving down and around in all the, you know, the wilderness of Sedona, and we got a battery that's not too great, but, uh, you know, what, whatever, so, so uh, we can overhear this guy as he's calling the maintenance guy. And he, and he says, uh, you know, he, he tried to start it, it wouldn't start, I think it just needs a jump, and, and then he's quiet for a few minutes, and then he says, kind of does this, well, I got to own my stuff, he says. He's talking to the guy, everybody can hear him, the whole thing. I, I think I left the lights on after the last tour, he says. And he, he uh, just got to own, must have said it four times, on the phone with the maintenance guy, I got to own my stuff, you just got to, I just got to own my stuff. And sure enough, he had left. The, he hangs up. He, uh, he he turns to the full bus and uh, he takes another deep breath and he says, "You know, guys, I just got to own my stuff." <laughs> and and he told us everything we'd already overheard uh, that uh, that he had left the lights on and uh, and and uh, and it wouldn't start because he thinks he ran the battery down because it had been parked too long and all the things and and so after they, sure enough the guy came jump started everything's fine everything's great throughout the course of the trip he's telling us all the stories about the rock formations and he's telling us all the stories about the history of the town and and strangely probably more stories about his own personal life than than anything else and uh, multiple times in that conversation uh, he would use the term well and you know what I, I kind of messed up in that I, I but you know I just had to own my stuff just had to just had to own my stuff and he even used it as a teaching point a couple of times you know you really just got to own your stuff he was like you know 
instructing us that we've got to own our stuff. And so ever since then, that phrase has stuck with me, and, and I usually uh, might use it, uh, something happens here or there, and I'll say, well, you know what, I just got to own my stuff. And, uh, and yet, I, I don't know, I don't think David or Ezra were on that trolley in Sedona, but, uh, but it still rings true uh, how David uh, acknowledged his sin, even though it was this obscure thing and counting people, and yet he knew it was wrong, and he did it anyway, and, and God knew it was wrong and, and wasn't pleased, and so, so David owned his stuff. He, he admitted his own sin. He admitted that it was his fault, it wasn't anybody else's fault, and he was going to take responsibility for his actions, nobody else. I mean, he said, uh, God, what, it was, it was, I, I was the one who made the, made the, the, the call to, to, to count these, these people. I, I was the shepherd. They're just sheep. I'm the one that did it, he said. Please, he says, let your hand be against me and, and my family. Don't let this plague harm anybody else. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame Satan. Uh, it says that Satan came and, and tempted. He didn't say, oh, Satan, the devil made me do it. He, uh, he simply said, hey, God, I admit it. It was my fault, nobody else's. He owned his stuff. He took responsibility for what he'd done. He was willing to shoulder that responsibility, whatever the consequences came with it, in order to, uh, in order to make things right. That is repentance. I, I think Ezra, in telling this story, was teaching a life principle that's still true today. God relents when we repent. And it even rhymes, so you might even remember that. God relents when we repent. True repentance is the first step in restoring life with God. I think a lot of times we want the blessing of God without the hard work, walking through the hard work of repentance. We, we want God to bless what I'm doing, but there's a few things we still need to make right, and we just kind of want to forget about those things and move on and why isn't God doing and he needs to do it. It's got to start with, we got we to own our stuff. And then, then we've got to do whatever we can to make things right, right? It's not just God, sorry. It's now I've got to do whatever I can to make things right. And that starts by admitting your sin, taking responsibility. But then sometimes you don't necessarily know what else to do, right? Well, David didn't necessarily know what else to do. So God told him what to do in this story. He said, set up an altar, not a real hard thing to do. He had people there with him, and they probably brought some rocks around and, and uh, made this, this altar. But there's some more inherent in that. It wasn't just to make an altar. Uh, God was expecting David to sacrifice something here, right? He was expecting David to worship. And so maybe there's another principle here at work, too. As we're making things right with God, true restoration with God happens when we go all in with him, right? We, we saw in the rest of the chapter there that David didn't just set up an altar, he, he bought the farm, right? Uh, he bought the entire, Aruna was gonna give it to him. He said, no, I'm, I'm gonna buy the whole thing. Uh, I'm gonna buy the wood for the fire. I'm gonna buy the oxen uh, for the sacrifice. Why did he do that? He said his worship had to cost him something. He wasn't gonna worship from somebody else's. He needed to sacrifice. Restoring our relationship with God involves repentance and obedience. And then there's joy and intimacy when we do more than just the bare minimum, right? Uh, sometimes, well, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to, to, to get right with God? Okay, check, check, check. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I, I think there's a lot of people in a lot of churches today who are asking, what's the least I can do and still get God to give me a pass? <laughs> wrong question, completely wrong question. What about asking 
especially in light of our sin and God relenting, what if we asked, what more can I do to show my love and gratitude, to show my loyalty to this holy God who cuts plagues short? What more can I do for God? How can I go all in? David is referred to in scripture a couple different places, Old Testament and New Testament, as, quote, a man after God's own heart. And I've also, I've often wondered in, uh, in, in hearing that, and, you know, he, he did a lot of great things, but he also, I mean, how does a guy who, who seemed to be pretty messed up and who messed up a lot, how, how, could, how could he be considered so close to God? And I guess if I was evaluating it based on sin lists, like we talked about, then, then uh, you know, I'd be confused. But I think that maybe Ezra is trying to get us to realize that it's the posture of David's heart. It's his desire to be close to God. It's his humility and willingness to own his stuff, to recognize as soon as he recognizes, oh, I messed up. And to do whatever it takes, more than whatever it takes, to be restored in that close relationship with God. And that's what gave him, uh, gave him the heart of God and endeared him to God. It wasn't that he was living this, this uh, uh, checking off all the lists, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, and I, I don't do this. He, he wasn't just looking at the list of sins. He was, his heart was turned toward God in every way. And when he did mess up, he would do all that he could, more than it took to make things right. And I, and I think if we're honest, we know today that we're, at times, we're pretty messed up too. And we've messed up a lot too. And that sin keeps us from a close relationship with God. But a, a humble spirit of repentance and a heart that wants to go all in with God will set us on a, on a path toward revival and restoration. Not just getting by, not just uh, seeing what we can do to, to, to do the bare minimum for God, but to, to revive us, to give us life with God. It grows and matures. As we, as we walk out this journey with, with Ezra in the books of First and Second Chronicles, discovering what it takes to experience revival, we, we need to know that it involves avoiding sin, certainly. Uh, but, but if we do sin, whether it's a big deal or what we feel like maybe it's just a small deal, we, we have to realize that we have to respond like David did. We've got to own our stuff. We've got to make things right. We've got to go all in with God. Sacrifice in worship with a humble heart and a humble spirit. Father God, we want to go all in with you. We want your life to, to course through our veins. We, we want to be revived. And, and uh, sure enough, there, uh, as we have walked through this uh, uh, pandemic as a, as a country, it's, it's uh, been something that's, that's torn a lot of us down, I think. And it could be that, that, uh, that, that we're feeling distant from you and, and we need that revival. We need that, that, uh, your spirit to, uh, to, to kind of quicken our hearts and, and get us back where we need to be. And Lord, I just pray. That for anyone and everyone here today or online logging in, Lord, if, if, if we're sensing uh, a place, something we need to own, Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would acknowledge uh, what we need to do to make it right, that you would guide and direct us so that we can experience that abundant, amazing life that we have with you. 
Father God, we, we commit ourselves to you. We, we, we ask you to, to, to lead us and guide us in the days ahead. Help us to, to make right decisions, holy decisions, things that are honoring to you. Uh, help us to, uh, to, to walk faithfully. And, and Lord, if and when we, we, uh, we take a step to the side or, or we mess up in some way, I pray that we can do all that we can to, to get back with you as fast as we can, to own that, to make it right, and to go all in in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you and we pray that as we go from here, we can go knowing that your spirit doesn't just stay here in this building, but that you go with us and you are guiding and directing our steps every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.